Welcome to the Coach Fury Podcast. This is where fitness and geekdom collide. It's time to live long, be strong, and die mighty. Hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 80. We've made it to 80, episode 100, rapidly approaching. Thank you for listening. I have an awesome guest. Uh, my buddy, Alex, the Hebrew Hammer Salkin, is today's guest for episode 80. Alex and I go way back. We haven't talked much over the last few years, but we got to hang out at the Original Strength Pro. We actually roomed together. Uh, you'll hear what happened about that situation. Um, and I was excited to have him on the show. Alex is an excellent coach, but he's also just a, a wonderful and unique individual. We both teach for Original Strength. And I look forward to you hearing our discussion. It's a good one. It's a very interesting one. It goes. We talk about stuff we have not talked about on the show before. Uh, but stuff we have talked about on the show before. Hey, come on down to Fury Industries. Uh, Gowanus, Brooklyn, come take a class, do some personal training. If you can't get down here, train with me online or come and take a course. April 28th in Albany at the Kettlebell Fitness Center at the DVRT, four-hour workshop, only $100, and that's James Newman and I, two master instructors for the price of one because we just want to teach together with our friends. Come on down and sign up for that on April 28th. June 9th, Original Strength Pressing Reset, MFF Bowery. June 15th, Original Strength Pressing Reset Certification at MSC Strength. You are going to hear Alex and I talk a lot about OS. Come and find out why it works for us for yourself. Then July 20th and 21st, DVRT Level 1 and Level 2 at Momentum Fitness in New York. August 18th, the HKC One Day Kettlebell Certification. Probably the most important applicable kettlebell certification out there, if I do say so myself, and I do. But quite frankly, if you don't have your goblet squats, your swings, or your get-ups, or a version, uh, the right version for your get-up down for you, uh, don't worry about going to a bigger course. So you have that, and then OS, September 7th, ACWA Tulsa, hanging out with the Ripitos. Uh, followed up on the, the next day, on September 8th, DVRT Workshop at ACWA Tulsa. Then I'm out in Vegas for the DVRT Master Instructor Summit. The RKC at Catalyst Sport, October 26th through 27th, is on. It's going to be awesome. It's about half sold out already seven months in. That's awesome. Stoked on that. And then uh, looking for potential DVRT love in November and potential RKC and OS love in Tokyo and maybe Taiwan in December. So the year's filling out nicely. But listen, uh, come take a course. Come, come learn. If you hear about these things on the shows that I talk about or we talk about, uh, come see for yourself if you haven't yet. I'd love to meet you in person and you can get some hands-on interaction with these things, these concepts and ideas and systems and tools that we talk about on this show. Hey, speaking of the show, if you dig it and you've listened to three or more, drop us a review. It would be greatly appreciated, especially on iTunes. So if you're on the iP on your phone and you go in the, the podcast app, just scroll down. You'll see where you can leave a review. That goes a long way um, for the show to get some reach. And it's not just about me. I really want the guest to be heard. So thank you for that. And without further ado, episode 80, The Hebrew Hammer and Fury. Do I sound okay for you? Yeah, sound great. How about me? You sound sexy. Wow. I've got that Wolverine purr going on. Uh, I'm working say, on it. Just I wouldn't give say me that. <laughs> um, well, I guess officially on the record too, man, one last time. I'm sorry I snore so bad. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I, I, uh, I really didn't take it uh, personally. Like when, as it was happening, I was like, ah, oh, geez. But it wasn't like the end of the world because I, I don't really mind sleeping on the couch. Um, but, uh, 
but I knew I was like, I have to make fun of him a little bit, but, <laughs> but I was like, but if I do it too much, he's going to think that I'm like being passive aggressive. So I've got to rein it in a little bit. Uh, but I really, I, I, I thought it was funny more than anything. <laughs> it was a, it was a minor inconvenience. Uh, on a scale of one to muscleman, which, <laughs> where would you rate me? Well, I couldn't imagine anybody snoring louder than you did, but. Oh, dude. Uh, no, I mean, that's actually probably not fair because um, <laughs> I've never heard muscleman snore. And I have heard people snore louder. louder. I mean, we were just very close by. That was the thing. So it wasn't like on the other end of a room, like in a dorm or something. No, like we were sharing a twin bed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, <laughs> and holding hands, which, by the way, people thought it was very funny. That picture is great. I just realized I haven't shared it because you sent it on a messenger and I haven't shared it. That is a lovely picture of you and I <laughs> holding hands in the creepy haunted house. Exactly. It is a must. You know, uh, it's funny because Seth was saying he was sure the house was haunted because he said his room was like freezing. But Mark Shropshire was saying that his room was like super hot. And I was like, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's haunted. It just means that like the, the air conditioning is not, you know, it's not being equally distributed among the rooms. Seth also that last night, and I don't know if he was there a night solo. He might have actually been there by himself the final night, or I don't know if you were with him, but the, the what was it, Saturday night, he said he heard noises on the roof. Okay, that's a little creepy. But it uh, might have been Mark turning the heat down, or because, you know, uh, it was an icebox when we came in Saturday. Yeah. And... I think I turned it up because I'm just also in New York. We just generally, we, we, we don't keep it that cold. You like to suffer. No, you just don't want to, you don't want to freeze in the middle of the night. No, and, certainly. And then I think Mark turned it the other way. And I think that might've been what Seth heard, but Seth was freaked out. I'm not going to lie. There was a time when like I got up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom uh, and I went downstairs. So like it wouldn't make noise between the two bedrooms. And that place was freaking creepy. You know, I tried not to think about it because I was I was on the couch and uh, I was like, you know, if there's going to be some sort of an evil, evil spirit coming in through any entrance, it's got to be the unlocked front door. So, uh, <laughs> well, at least you could hide in plain sight in front of the windows with no curtains, the floor to ceiling windows with no curtains. Yeah, dude, it's not a T-Rex that just can't see you when you're not moving. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, you got to find that 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 dead zone in the raptor's eyes where yeah, you're exactly. back and forth to the left and the right and you're fine. No, it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. I didn't think to do that. By the way, I just noticed uh, like about a minute ago that we're recording. Yep, we're on. This is, okay. this is all going live. Good. I guess all that terrible stuff that I said about you earlier is not going to make it onto the show. Um, I mean, if, it's, if, it, if it was on before we, I hit record, no. <laughs> if it was on after, I, I don't care. I know you love me and you know I, I love do. you. I, I do and I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I generally, generally don't do like a big official, uh, hey, we're on, but hey, we're on. Hey, listeners. <laughs> uh, this is my buddy, Alex Alkin, a.k.a. the Hebrew Hammer, who hey, hey. I have now known you, we met, what, 2011? 2011, um, I think. When was San Diego? Yeah, it was 2011. That's crazy. So eight years. Uh, Al Al Alex and I met at the second Dragon Door what was it called? Marketing Intensive Mastermind. Marketing, yeah, Marketing Mastermind Intensive. In San Diego. And we had an amazing crew there. Uh, a lot of people like Alex are now lifelong friends and people that I've traveled and taught with and stuff. Uh, uh, in terms of leadership from either organization, uh, most of the most of the staff there now or, or member attendees there now are all senior leadership of uh, Strong First. And uh, it was quite a fun, very intense couple of days. What were the days like? 20 hours long? Uh, I think it was 25 hours per day. That was the, uh, 
Pr pretty yeah. much. I, I remember I got a lot out of it, uh, but I remember being right up front, just trying not to fall asleep. You know how you hit that point of the nod? Like you just, yeah, oh yeah. Subway train and you, you start to, you start to tip and then you write yourself, tip and write yourself. And I'm like, I am right in front of John Duquesne. And it wasn't because he was boring. It was because we were literally 25 hours into that course each day. Oh yeah. No, I remember, I have to say actually that course changed the course of my career because I remember before that I was, I'm you know, still sometimes a little timid about things, but like before that I was much more timid about sharing things, you know, expressing opinions about, you know, what have you. And that made a huge impact on me. I still happen to have the, the two manuals from it. And it's like, really is solid gold. I mean, Duquesne really outdid himself with that, that course. And I have to say, I mean, in, in, uh, you know, for infinite thanks that I could give to him is that he dropped the price of the course. Like he was, he had yeah. uh, people, I think maybe some of his mentors were saying that it should be with the amount of information he was giving away, that it should be at least like $10,000. And it, I, I think the early bird price ended up being 3,500. And I was like, that's a lot of money, but like, I got to spend it. Like I, I really have to be here. Like I just had this, this feeling that like I had to be there and it turned out to be a, a great decision because I met, you know, guys like you learned a ton. And like I said, I mean, it really shifted the course of my career. I remember one of the things they talked about was, was developing our stories and also in like embracing the nicknames. So yeah. uh, I think you were already going by Hebrew hammer, but like, I don't know if you were backing it i mean i didn't have I, a history of knowing you the same i way. don't think you know what i'll tell you the truth i actually don't think so because whenever i tell people about the origin of my nickname it was two people independently gave me the nickname it was you and ari harris oh no shit i didn't realize yeah. that yeah so i mean i'm actually you're you're right now i'm speaking to the creator of the hebrew hammer Really, I mean, because otherwise I could have gotten a much lamer nickname. See, I was way too tired to realize it by the end of the course. Well, congrats. Uh, I'll give you my rooting number and bank account for the world uh, moving forward. Oh, that's awesome, man. I didn't, I didn't really remember or put that part together. Yeah. Um, I remember, though, that we, we talked about developing, you know, the hero story. Mm -hmm. What sets us apart? What even defines a hero story? And it's interesting now as, as, as blot we've hit this weird thing. I think when you and I met, it was around the time of the blog, right? That blog oh, yeah. article, where it was more about like writing and with a video to back it up. And now we're in this weird more, it's where it's content image based, where it's just like throw a workout, throw something on. And I know you just posted a cool wall crawl video. I know I've been trying more and more lately um, to put a, a little bit more educational, useful stuff up there, as opposed to just here's every session I've ever done in the last yeah. five days. Um, and I think that idea of the story was, is how do you make yourself not just earn your reputation, but also how do you, how do you make yourself stand out of a, of a crowd? And that's one of the things that John was very good at, very good at is, is how do you find that? And then also just for me, I think standing behind it, because I was still a relatively new trainer. I think I was only training for a year and I know financially I was really suffering. So I like you, I was like, I need to be at this thing. Yeah, I know I was fortunate enough that I applied for one of the scholarships. Um, he had like, I think, I don't remember if it was like five scholarship spots and yeah. uh, you had to write in why you felt you wanted it, why you felt you deserved it. And I got one of them. I still had to pay, but it, it was, it was even less than you did. So you can be mad at me about that. <laughs> um, I'm mad at Duquesne. I just didn't even know about this. Thing. Consider it your nickname. It was something they put out like, I think like two months beforehand. And I think there was like a, a one month wait and see yeah um who got who got them and i don't know who else there had them i don't think any of us were being vocal about it because we didn't want anybody that spent the money to, yeah uh, be pissed 
So <laughs> <laughs> now we can. I can do it. Now the secret's out. Exactly. I remember, so Hebrew Hammer came about. It was really when I was already embracing Coach Fury, but it was like really about like, okay, this is how I'm going to start uh, presenting myself um, when I write. Like I hadn't thought of that avatar yet. You know, I haven't thought of that type of a thing yet. I was yeah. just writing. And our friend Corey Howard, we, we nicknamed Black Hawk Down because <laughs> he looks like uh, William Fishner. Yeah. And Jim Perry, the human snowball. Yeah. He's still doing it. I haven't heard from him in a long time uh, using the nickname at all. But that was probably the, actually the best nickname because Jim kept wrecking himself skiing. So the no, like, like really wrecking himself. I remember yeah. seeing a very interesting video of him doing a kettlebell swing with uh, one leg on the ground and one knee up on a bench. I was like, oh, that's interesting. It was like, oh, because he broke his shin. Again. He has no choice. <laughs> and that swing worked, by the way. Uh, one of the fighters at Five Points, uh, Jose Cruz, shortly after that blew out, I think it was his Achilles. Oh, and a boot on, And we were, we were having him swing with that boot on after uh, the initial swelling went down. That's amazing. Yeah, and I, I will say also, not just on the story thing, there were a couple of points early on in, in a trainer in trainer land where I was like, I am not making enough money right now. I don't have enough clients. And this is even, this is just going into my divorce probably time. And I'm like, I might have to leave this. And I just took some of his marketing strategies, like just like in terms of applying him to a sale. Um, back then I was definitely more up to do a scarcity tactic. I don't do that anymore. It just is what it is for me. Yeah. Um, but it helped a lot. Like, whenever I'd be like, holy crap, I, I don't think I can pay my rent. I would review some of that manual or look at my notes and throw something out there and it worked. Yeah. No, it's, it's uh, you know, and Duquesne had a, a great education through Dan Kennedy, who's one of like the best marketers easily of the 20th century, maybe ever. I don't know. I'm not a marketing expert, but I do have a number of Kennedy's books, um, and I'm, uh, I follow another one of uh, Kennedy's admirers, a guy named Ben Settle. And, um, I mean, Kennedy's stuff is just like, I mean, it, there's like not an ounce of fat on any, of his, uh, on any of his books. I mean, you read some of them and you're like, good God, like I could do all this stuff. He actually, you know what, he tells a story in one of his books of a dentist who went to one of his, it was like $10,000 marketing weekends or something like that. I could be wrong about the, about the price, but um, this guy, this dentist, I think he made a, he, he wrote out something like, like maybe 300 things that he could do to, um, to improve his business without spending money. Mm -hmm. And he like, and it was, you know, it was stuff like maybe, uh, I'm guessing there might have been like uh, like an upsell in there at some point. I, I, I don't know. He didn't really mention what he did, but it could have very well been like maybe the secretary greets people and is like a little bit nicer to them. Maybe they maybe they hand out like a card that says, uh, you know, please refer whoever. You know, it could have been something like that. But it was like tripled his income in like less than a year, uh, which is really incredible. And, and, and just by, by doing stuff that, you know, he didn't have to put like a whole bunch into advertising. He was just doing things in a more intelligent way. I think in that, it, I remember John telling that story. And the other, the other part of that was, I, I don't know if it was the same dentist, but just somebody that had upped their rate to the point where they weren't looking to get a hundred clients. They were looking to get, you know, the 10 that would pay a very, very high rate. Yeah. And I, I like to think of myself as wanting to be kind of in the, in the middle of that where 
it's it's weird when I when I became a trainer, I kept thinking of like, oh, I can easily at some point have like a super high hourly rate and only have to work a couple hours. You tend to realize that that's sort of I don't know trainers if you're out there and I'm sure there's a bunch of you, but like I think overall that's not the norm. I think yeah. most of us are still sort of slugging away um, at that, like in terms of like a three hundred dollar an hour rate, you know. Yeah that the gym at least isn't getting, you know, 70% of it. Um, but I remember that was the thing where I was like, I wonder if I can actually, how do I become that? And I think that is oddly maybe one of the motivating factors in me assisting so much in terms of just trying to be better. Like how, if I'm going to define myself as somebody using kettlebells, how do I try to be one of the best in using kettlebells? Absolutely. Um, certainly I needed a bigger goal of being not just the best at kettlebells, being a, a great overall coach, but at the time, that was it. And, and I think we forget about that. I think uh, it's actually, it's funny thinking about Jim Perry, who's, I don't know if he still partners with Franz, not Franz Steinman. I don't think he is anymore, but Franz was one of the guys early on too, that had posted up about how trainers perpetually undersell themselves at rates, yeah. like just chasing the dollar. And I think that is still one of the hardest things most of us deal with. And even now, like, I think I have fairly realistic rates, but um, they're not too high, but they're definitely, I don't think too low. Mm -hmm. Maybe now I'll have people that are like, you're too, you should be charging more. And then of course they're like, but don't charge me more. <laughs> right. Exactly. But charge just, everybody else more, but yeah, but just me, you know, just not me. <laughs> yeah. I, I have to say, I think, um, I'm, I'm still, I'm, I'm like 80% sure of this. Like there are still some circumstances I think where maybe things might be a little bit different, but I'm a big believer that if you believe that your time is worth a certain amount of money, you should not, you should not ever go below it. I mean, periodically, you know, like what Duquesne did with the, the scholarship sort of a thing. Like, you know, you might do something like that. If it's something where the people are really genuinely in need, but they're very serious students, it's like, I can do that. Like, I've had that happen a few times. I had one of my, uh, one of my younger brother's friends a number of years ago wanted to learn how to, you know, how to lift kettlebells. And he was like in college and he didn't have any money. And I was like, I'll tell you what, uh, you know, my normal rate is whatever it was at the time. And I said, but uh, when you come, just you know, give me whatever you can spare. It didn't have to break the bank, but you know, I wanted him to have like some investment and I wanted him to have some skin in the game. And, uh, and then I think I also told him buy a copy of enter the kettlebell and like one 35 pound kettlebell from dragon door. And he did it. And I was like, I gave him like very specific instructions. So I was like, okay, this, he, he's very serious about it. And sometimes he'd pay me like 10 bucks. Sometimes it'd be 20, but like he took his training very seriously. And so I didn't mind taking a, a hit because he was just so passionate about, about what he was doing. Then I had another, uh, another instance where I was training a lady who was like 75 and uh, her PT, uh, who would send me quite a bit of business, said, now you can't take more than, this is when I was living in Israel, you can't take more than 100 shekels per hour from her, which is, I mean, it was maybe like around 20-ish dollars. I don't know exactly what the exchange rate, maybe more like 25. Uh, but it was like 60% less than what I usually charged. So I was like, okay, fine. Uh, and I was worried that she wasn't going to take it seriously. But I mean, this gal, she did like everything, everything I told her to do. She hated every second of it. She told me <laughs> that every time I saw her uh, because she just didn't like exercise. But like, but yeah, like it completely turned her life around. Um, but the bottom line now, as far as uh, for any trainers who are listening, um, you have to know your worth. But you also have to be realistic about what it is because, you know, you might think, well, I'm going to, I'm going to jack my rate up to 300 bucks an hour. It's like, you know, you'll know if you're not quite worth 300 bucks an hour yet. 
Like it, it might make sense to look at some of the people who do charge that and compare and contrast your experience and your education. But uh, by all means, if you're good at something, don't do it for free and don't necessarily do it for cheap, but, but be very serious when you, when you do it. I think you have to look at financially, like uh, there, there's that interesting line of like your avatar, who you market to, who you actually yeah. want to train and what, the, what kind of income generally the people you want to train have, right? Yeah. And I know that I just, I, I've had my rate higher in the past and then dropped it because uh, you probably fall in this category too where a lot of the people we train are trainers, are trainers, right? Fellow coaches. Yeah. Generally not flush with cash, right? Unfortunately, and, uh, yeah. So I, I you know, I, I, at one point I actually dropped my rate and instead of having it be like a trainer rate and a gen pop rate, I, I, that didn't sit well with me. So I just dropped my rate, not like super cheap, but like affordable, right? I wasn't trying to price out trainers, um, you know, looking to pass their certs or prepping for one of my certs. Mm -hmm. and when I got promoted to OS master, I finally like, you know what? Uh, it's time for a raise. When's the last time I've given myself a raise? And yeah. it's been like two and a half years almost. And, you know, that was one of those evaluation points. Like, is it the title alone? No, but the title's a good impetus to make a change. But it's like, it's the two extra years of experience. Yeah. Like, we as an industry tend to not do that. We tend to work on package deals, uh, especially as independent trainers. I think it's really tricky to find that sweet spot. And I also think through the, uh, the, the, the lens of social media, I think we think everybody's doing a lot better than they actually are. And I don't think we're oh, yeah. all doing bad, but I think there's this impression that we're all crushing our workouts six days a week and that we have all of this free time to go travel. And that's not really the case whatsoever, you know? And uh, I think that's actually very select few people actually have that type of a life where they're just working out all the time, cranking in their sessions, and then have a comfortable work-life ratio. I think most of us are struggling one end of that spectrum. Um, so I think it's hard for people to know what, what that worth is. And especially when you hear, do you work, where are you working these days? I didn't even ask you this. You're not in a big box gym, right? Correct. There's a, a gym in uh, Exton, Pennsylvania, which is uh, not too far from where I live. It's called the Dragon Gym. Um, matter of fact, it was, uh, it was featured on Dragon Door TV back in the day. Um, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I'm, I, I don't, I'm not like an official employee. I'm like a contractor, but, uh, but I'm there like almost every day to work out and what have you. Um, but yeah, not a, not a big box gym. I, I had considered it briefly, but I was kind of like, you know, like I have kind of, I like keeping an unpredictable schedule, meaning that like, I don't like, you know, Danny, uh, for example, kind of nudged me to come to the, to the workshops, uh, you know, last, what was it? not quite last weekend, two weekends two weeks, ago. Two weeks ago. And, uh, and I was like, yeah, you know what? Maybe I will. So I just decided to, you know, to get a plane ticket and just went out there. And so like, it's not so easy to do that if, if you're, you know, if you work for somebody else, like if you're working for yourself, you can do that. So now obviously you have to be a real slave driver if you want to actually succeed in working for yourself. Um, and, and I also think that um, you, you really have to, um, you have to work on yourself as a person very much. Uh, I mean, you have to constantly work on like self-improvement uh, in order to successfully work for yourself because, you know, it, it's easy to kind of skate by when somebody else is, is pushing you from behind. 
Uh, but if you're the one who's doing all the pushing, it's like you get tired. And so you've got to, you've got to learn how to build up that stamina to just continue to do it, to deal with the doldrums, to deal with the, you know, the, the valleys to prepare you for the peaks. Yeah, that, that's very well put. The reason I ask about where you're at is, you know, for, for people that work at a, at a big box gym, it, you know, and even some like uh, boutique, sp- boutique spots, like the, the pay rate isn't as high as people would think based on the workload. Oh yeah. To the other end, the thing that I like about working for myself, the two things that I, I value the most, well, three things is that it's uh, 100% me coming through here in terms of my training philosophy. Yeah. Um, and you know, in the, the systems that you and I teach for, um, and then control over my schedule and then maximum dollar per hour in terms of, even if my rate is realistic and comparable, I'm taking the whole thing home. Unless yeah. there's like a gym fee, which I then roll into, you know, I, I add to my rate if there is a gym fee. So I'm maximizing my dollar per hour value, uh, maximizing my schedule, still trainer land. That's still hard to really do um, just because, you know, again, when do people normally want to train? It's mornings and evenings. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you work alone, that's you're doing both shifts. Um, but that's been super rewarding. But then you talk about the peaks and valleys and trying to find your worth within that. I think that that's. That's rough. I, I've started to put my rates up. If anybody's interested, my rates are on my website. So there's no, there's no, um, uh, no, there's no, there's no faking it or somebody gets this rate or that rate. My rates are on my website. So if somebody doesn't want to train with me right out the gate, there's that. I offer discounts if people buy five packs of sessions. But beyond that, it, it sort of is what it is. Um, if anything, I've been trying to simplify that. And I think it's important for coaches out there, uh, especially if you're on the newer end. Um, uh, understand that you need more experience if you're a newer coach, but also know that like 20 bucks an hour, if you're training a friend independently, uh, again, there's different situations, Alex, and like your buddy, uh, I'll talk about that in a moment. Cause it's actually something I, I'm looking to pursue in the future. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think like some, sometimes you're just like, well, I'm not really good. So I'm going to do it for this. And I, I think like if you spent a thousand bucks or more on, on education, it, you should charge a little bit more than 20 bucks for your session. Um, yeah. And if you're finding yourself at a facility that, you know, two, three years in, you're still only getting like a $20, $30 cut, you might really want to reevaluate your place. Uh, certainly uh, uh, where you live and, and, you know, median incomes and stuff come into play, cost of living. But I think a lot of us end up in these positions where we're scrapping for like 25 to 35 bucks an hour. And, you know, I think we'd be shocked if we looked at how many other professions are out there that make about the same give or take a little bit that don't require the same amount of education and time we invest into it. So there's that. Um, that said, I love that you actually mentioned how you hooked up uh, a couple of people. One of the things I would like to do when I finally open a spot is have community hours that are based on income. So here are these hours. Uh, I just need some sort of proof that this is your annual income, uh, not to be judgmental, but so that this is how you get access to training with me. Cause I don't want people to be blocked out from quality training. Certainly. Um, I don't think everybody needs to be blank ride or die because they just, that's all they can afford. Yeah. Um, so like that Avenue, I can totally understand and respect. Uh, hey, we've look at that. We've been going on for a little while already, buddy. I like this, Alex. Yeah. How long, how long has this been? Uh, we've been on about half an hour already. Nice. We're still going. We ain't even started yet. Oh yeah, dude. No, it's like that Seinfeld episode when they think they're in the empty and the gas tank, you know what I'm referring to? <laughs> Kramer's driving. I don't. I'm not a big Seinfeld guy, but oh, okay. I could have pretended like I did, but I kept it real. Okay. I appreciate you keeping it real. At any rate, yeah, no, we're, we're, uh, we're only getting started, man. Um, let's talk about this. So 
you did one of the bolder, cooler things uh, of any of my friends where you literally full-time moved to Israel for years, not just for like a little bit of a visit, for yeah. years. And one of the things, and I think you and I actually talked about this, was uh, I think I asked you, and if I didn't, I meant to, was this the right time? Because you were starting to build a name for yourself in the States. And you were like, this is my plan. This is how I remembered in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, this is my plan. This is what I'm going to do. So what was it like? Like, what was the, what was the training life like or, or local training um, personality, right? Because every country tends to have a little bit of a different personality and there's pockets of the sameness everywhere. But some, like Asia didn't really tend to be, well, Japan, I should say, I shouldn't say all of Asia, like, you know, kettlebells are still relatively new. CrossFit was starting to make a mark in it, but they were very into, to some degree, bodybuilding and calisthenics, uh, more functional, in quotes, functional fitness type stuff, but not necessarily aimed at lifting heavy. Um, What did you find in Israel? Was any of it like surprising? Yeah, definitely. Uh, one thing I'll say, so you, you've uh, recounted most of the story pretty well. I remember us having a conversation, I'm trying to think, you know what, I think it was at uh, your, where you were, where you were training before. Five points. Uh, at five points. Yeah. And I remember you, because I was talking about it, because I was there, <clears throat> actually, it was in 2012. I was there for a little while. I think we had the first ever slumber party of strength. And uh, I think I stayed at your place. Yeah, you did. Was that who? Who was that? Was that you, Rick, and and Aris? No, I've never met Aris. I've met Rick only once. Um, I, I could be wrong. That I, I remember we met up at the you, very you definitely. Least. You definitely slept over for. I I think it was OS. I th- well, there were two times. One um, for OS. It wasn't for OS. It was. Uh, it was a couple of months later when I was going to be going uh, to Nebraska. I was going back to to visit. That's another interesting story. I'm from Nebraska originally. Like I tell that story, I tell that anywhere. And people are like, you know, I remember actually, well, I'll get into Israel in a second, but whenever I would eat, I would be at like a, like a Shabbat like meal. People would go around the table, like, where are you from? I'm from New York. Or I'm from LA or I'm from Rehovot or I'm from, you know, wherever they happen to be, whether it was in Israel or the US, they would get to me and I'd be like, I'm from Omaha, Nebraska. And People would be like, ooh, uh. <laughs> like they had never met somebody from Nebraska. It was, it just blew their mind. You uh, wonder if they're in picturing like a Western. Oh, like, I'm sure they were. Ooh, it's like a 19, it's like Deadwood. You came from Deadwood. Exactly. They're like, wow, you're from 1850? <laughs> so, <laughs> so. You're like, I'm the, I'm the Huckleberry you're looking for. I'm your Huckleberry. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's like, it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there was a. Uh, I remember one time in particular, because I was looking at this guy dead on, like somebody asked where he was from. It was a, it was a uh, similar situation. And I, it was, I think he said Kentucky and people were like, oh, okay. And I was like, it really is just Nebraska. It's not like these other weird, you know, states in the South or the Midwest. It's only Nebraska people do this for. Um, Maybe it's just they didn't know Jewish people lived in Nebraska. Well, that was always the first question. They were like, oh, there were two questions. There are Jews in Nebraska? That was number one. And, and I, would, I would usually say something funny like, well, it used to be, and then I moved here. Um, you know, or I would say something like, yeah, but the population dropped by like 25% like the minute I left. Uh, <laughs> we should know. also point out that the, the haunted house we were talking about, that we, we shared a room and I snored you out of it. We, they, they purposely put the two Jews in the same bedroom, I think. Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I, I was a little worried about that. You might, you might very well have saved one of us, as it turns out, neither of us had uh, any adverse effect to, to being in the room. <laughs> at the same time, that would have been, it would have been problematic, possibly. But, uh, 
so going back to your original question, yeah, so it was in 2013. Uh, actually, it'll be next, next month. It will have been six years ago. Wow. Uh, I, I moved to Israel, and um, I do remember having the conversation with you. You were like, look, man, don't do it because, you know, you're making a name for yourself. People are starting to recognize you here. Like, you're going to be – I don't, maybe you didn't say it exactly like this. I, but I probably like, said it pretty simple. I think this was actually me, you, and Ari went out for dinner that night. Yeah, yeah, that I sounds think, about I think right. It was when we went out to barbecue when we watched we watched you eat two pounds of barbecue. Yeah, those were the days. I mean, I can still do that. It's not like you know, those were the days, but these are still also the days. So, um, <laughs> I just have a little more experience. Um, but uh, yeah, at any rate, I remember I remember thinking like, now I have to do it because if I don't do it now, like this is the most. It's kind of like you know, it, if you're gonna do like a running leap, like if you stop short you don't get the chance to go back and, yeah. and build up all the momentum again. So I was like, I, I have to do it. And I'll tell you something, man, it was like the people, uh, maybe people who visited abroad, um, may have a good, a good idea of like what it's like to, to be in another country. Maybe they kind of, you know, get a feel for what it's like, how other people live. It, it was, I'll get to the training part in a second, but I will tell you, it was extremely difficult and people, uh, and it wasn't you know, like I already spoke the language like perfectly fine. Um, I, I have to brag a little bit. I, I speak better than an average for, for most Americans. Most America, I met plenty of Americans living there whose Hebrew was like for you know 20 years. Like my Hebrew was light years better than theirs, but I took it very seriously. Um, so it wasn't it, it wasn't the language. It wasn't the culture. It's just the you know people don't make nearly as much money. The, um, the culture is different, but um, it's also it's, it's similar enough, or I, I was familiar enough with it where I was able to more or less make, uh, make the leap. Uh, and I, I kind of knew what I was getting into, but it's also like when you're only going there for like, let's say 10 to 14 days and you come back, you know, those small doses, they're, they're kind of quaint. But when it's like day in and day out for four and a half years, like it, it, uh, it, it can be very difficult to, uh, to completely adjust. Mm. But, um, but the training scene, I also have kind of a weird experience with it because I lived in Jerusalem for most of the time. And it's like one of the only places I've, I've ever lived where people genuinely, not everybody, but the people I trained genuinely didn't care how they looked. I mean, they were very modest for the most part, uh, for the most part, a very religious crowd. Um, so they weren't really so interested in, um, uh, you know, in like showing off at the beach and stuff like that. It was just, they just didn't want to be in pain. So there, wow. I mostly work with people who uh, were sent to me by the physical therapists who would say, okay, we've taken them as far as, as far as they can go with physical therapy. Like you need to help them learn how to move day to day so that they're not, you know, finding theirself, themselves in my office, you know, every other month. So, I mean, that's how I got as good as I did with uh, original strength, for example, and also uh, some of the basic body weight movements. I, I'd really kind of underestimated how important they are for people. And um, because for, yeah, for really about four years, uh, I thought I was going to have everybody using kettlebells. Like I found out places that they could get them in Jerusalem. I only had maybe three students in that entire time. Ever, no, I took that back four who ever needed a kettlebell wow. like, at all. Because some, a lot of them, you know, they had, they had imbalances that were such that it's like, if I had them swing a kettlebell, like they get pretty seriously hurt, you know, like if they're, let's say, you know, a lot of them, for example, I can think of a few in particular who had, uh, you know, thoracic spine was very rounded forward for many years of just, you know, sitting behind a desk and doing paltry little movement. Uh, I mean, you just can't load somebody up and then have them 
rapidly move a weight. So a lot of the stuff was just getting them to, to be consistent with like daily movement. Now, I would also venture out into like uh, the center of the country, what they call the Merkaz, which is center in Hebrew. And uh, in that whole area, like the, the culture was very different. Jerusalem was kind of uh, uh, like an anomaly in some sense. It's, it's very unique, whereas like the rest of the country is quite a bit different. I mean, like from north to south and, you know, the places in the middle, they all have kind of their own flair, their own character. But, uh, but in, the, in the center, it was like people, they seem to have been kind of, I don't want to necessarily call it like a renaissance of physical culture, but there was much more of a sense of um, like a need to be physically active and physically fit. I wouldn't say it reached the level uh, that you see in the U.S., at least in terms of like being front and center in, their, in people's consciousness, because yeah. there are still physical activities that people would do like with their family. Like, you know, they might go on like nature walks or, or they would take like a day trip, let's say to the Golan, and they would, they would walk on some of the trails or they would go to the beach and they would, you know, they would play at the beach. Uh, they would buy, they would ride their bikes. So, I mean, like there's still some aspect of like movement just, you know, because it's fun or there's something that you're going to do along the way that will be interesting, but more and more, um, fitness, I would say the Israeli fitness scene is probably 10 or 15 years behind, uh, mm -hmm. what we have in the U S so it's weird. It's kind of like, I, I got to see sort of what the beginnings of what of the way things were in the U S like what they would have been like, because that's what I was what I was seeing when I was there. So uh, as far as the quality of the trainers, it's very much the same as the US. Like you have some who are just kind of rep counters or who are doing it as a, um, as a hobby. You know, they think it's gonna be kind of an easy way to, you know, to make some extra money doing the stuff that they love. And uh, I think those people probably don't last all that long. I think they probably end up moving on just like they do in the US. But I, I ended up meeting quite a few people who really uh, wanted to strive for more. They wanted to get a better understanding of how to use kettlebells, were really interested in strength training. Um, and uh, one of the things that, that I found was very interesting is that um, they also really want, like they were very interested in what I had to say, which, and the reason I say I find that interesting is because uh, Israel is known for having kind of like a very macho culture you know, like it's, mm -hmm. it's just, uh, it's just kind of a Middle Eastern culture in general. Um, and, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm kind of like a skinny dude. Like you can, you can maybe tell that I work out, but I'm, you know, nothing like, like when I was in Israel, this should also give you an idea of, you know, the, the status of, of weight training there. People would periodically come up to the, come up to me in the street and they'd be like, you know, well, they would kind of do like a, like a bodybuilder type pose. Like how much do you, uh, and then they didn't really know how to say bench press. So they would they would make the motion of it, um, where I, nobody's ever done that in the U.S. for me, just <laughs> to give you an idea. Um, but they were very interested in learning a lot and learning more. Uh, I met some very good friends there and people who, uh, you know, who became like almost like second family there. Like uh, like Ronan Katz is a great example. Benny, Benny. Meyer. You yeah. met yeah you remember Ronan? Did you meet Benny? I did I did at Five Points. I, I actually right. helped train. I, I trained Ronan once for to work on his press. I remember that um, early, early on um, after that article had come out that I wrote for Dragondor at the time. And uh, Benny also came down and I think he had done, he, he was there doing a session going over his barbell lifts with Alan Stein at five points. Yeah. 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 Okay. So you, you've met them. Some of the other Great people, I mean, oh. Ronan in particular, I've met Ronan did a breathing workshop. Ronan, Ronan's like, I, I got to know him a, a, a bit more than I did Benny. And I just awesome person. Yeah, they're both phenomenal people, and they're 
um, <coughs> very dedicated to what they do, very dedicated to uh, particularly for growing strong first in, uh, in Israel. Uh, in addition, I, I met a lot of people who were either their students uh, or who are acolytes who kind of came along. Uh, they saw the value in kettlebell training and strength training and, you know, in, in strong first. Uh, I'll name drop a few of them because when they're big and famous, I want to be able to say that it's, it's on record that I mention them. Uh, but a, a good friend of mine, Gil Reves, was one of them. I, I call him the beast from the Middle East. because this <laughs> dude, I mean, really, he was, it was kind of like, I, I don't know, it was like you see those war movies where it's like somebody's dropped into a war zone and there's already some crazy soldier who's behind enemy lines, like, you know, who's been, who's been working, you know, to... I don't know, prepare things for the you know, people who are showing up. That's like, that was a gill to, to me because when I met him, he could just do things that were like insane. And he, he's kind of a big dude and he's very muscular, but, but like his strength went beyond what you would even expect from, from you know, a guy like him. So mm -hmm. uh, he was, he's phenomenal. Um, uh, Gabriel Moskovitz is another one. He owns an amazing gym in, uh, in the center in an area called Rishon Lezion. Uh, and uh, so I met the people that I met that I was around the most it gave me a really positive impression about the, the state of training in Israel. Like I, I just didn't really find myself around too many trainers who, and I'm sure it's the same for you, you know, like most of the people that you're around are probably the people who are like-minded, you know, they, they want to help people. Yeah. They're, they're very passionate about what they do. Um, they don't see it as, as like a transient sort of a career before they go on to something serious. It's like, it's their life's work. And, and those are the people uh, that I met in, uh, in Israel that I, that I really spent a lot of time with. I think one of the very nice things about the kettlebell world, however it started, and, and obviously it was, it was uniquely, a uniquely a simpler time prior to the split of the RKC and Strong First, yeah. that you know, whatever drew us to kettlebells also managed to guide us to other systems like how you and I are still in, and, and Rick Garcia are still in the OS front like we or Seth and I had DVRT together as well as kettlebells and as well as OS like so there's a like-mindedness not just in training implement but also in training strategies uh, uh training philosophies that makes it easier to have like a legit conversation you know and support each other up as opposed to they're really I mean, sometimes, sometimes I think it's very valuable to go to like a local gym, whether it's a big box or a mom and pop where it's just behind, right? Yeah. Everyone's sort of doing the best they can, but you can see the phone it in strategies. You can see the outdated strategies. You can see that it's just sales and personality versus actually this is what we're doing. And I'm not even just talking old school body weight. I mean, uh, bodybuilding type stuff. Like I hate to say it, like one of the things I see in Brooklyn now is this idea of hit being the, the one and be all end all of all strength, fat loss, fitness, you know, hit, 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 without people really knowing what it is other than sweating, yeah, getting your heart rate up, is that I do love that. And it, it, it's nice to see sometimes when people aren't doing that, because you're like, okay, that is still out here. That's what makes me and my crew special and uh, unique in trying to move away from that. But also it's kind of sad, but like, you know, the, the, the person that's going to pick between two trainers might not understand that that stuff is not safe or beneficial. Yeah. Um, versus working with somebody that is and the, and the price might be the same like we're not even talking about higher rate lower rate it's the same thing uh i think that's a really good place to come from and i think it's great that you can go to a, a spot and find these like-minded people you know out in israel um i am not shocked that through ronan there's uh, a great number of people that are probably amazing coaches out there 
but also like when I go to Japan, um, the Kineticos crew like Taizo, who's now a DVRT master instructor working for Kauri and Travis Johnson, you just find these gems everywhere, right? It's yeah. just, that's the cool thing. Uh, and the more you get to travel and have that experience, the more you realize we're relatable. Like there's always going to be a cultural difference, but it usually doesn't necessarily hit once, once you guide somebody in your training room, it, it's easy to like sort of normalize. And that's really cool. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you this in terms of, in terms of Israel, because I think, you know, as somebody that is, was, was oddly brought up, half Jewish. Uh, and I say oddly because my mom's not Jewish. My dad was normally it follows your mom's lineage, but my dad's family was very religious at the time. So they decided to have me start to pursue that. Um, until I just got too punk rock enough to care. Um, <laughs> I, I mean that with all due respect to everybody. Sure. Um, I think when Hebrew school became twice a week instead of once a week, I said, uh, I really just want to skateboard and hang out with my friends. And my folks were like, well, you're not going to get a bar mitzvah. And, you know, there's presence there. And I'm like, well, that doesn't seem like a great reason to have one anyway. Uh, I'll just skate. And yeah, that's, that's a pretty bad, uh, yeah. that's a bad sales strategy. I think they were trying it because they knew me. Uh, I was an only child. So I think they, the money card might have worked. I think they'd hoped that I would have stayed. Right. But um, I forgot even where I'm going with this story. Well, uh, we're talking about, uh, about Israel. Oh, about, so. Yeah. With that background, you know, you hear about Israel, you hear about Jerusalem, and you hear about a lot of violence. You know, it's it's. It, it, what, did you feel safe there? Oh yeah, I mean, like we'll put it this way: like the the. I don't want to make it sound like I'm I'm making like a harangue against the media, but they, I mean, they definitely have a, a vested interest in only reporting things that are interesting. Like periodically, they're going to have like a human interest story about like you know, like a firefighter who saved a kitten from the tree and and then, you know, became the family pet or, you know, like cutesy things like that. But the reality is, is that uh, the, the biggest hardship that I faced in, in Israel was never violence. I like, I never, um, and I think anybody who, who's been there for uh, even a, a short period of time will tell you that, like, I really never felt unsafe. Like, even when there were times where, like, sometimes the tensions were heightened, there there's not, like, um, like, I, I never encountered uh, much like bitterness or or anger on the side of the Jews toward Arabs or on the side of the Arabs toward the Jews. I mean, certainly there are probably individuals who, you know, who would be like that, but I never really had any, I had one negative experience, but it, it's, it's kind of a, uh, um, it's kind of a fluke, but uh, the rest of them, it was like, yeah, I never, like I, I would, you could walk through like, majority Arab areas for the most part. And like, I never really felt unsafe. You know, I never felt like, oh, I better get out of here quick, you know, or, or even when there were like tensions between like Hamas and Israel, um, there was, I mean, like we'd have to race down to like the bomb shelter when like bomb sirens would go off. But, uh, but I mean, that was the kind of the extent of it. What's, what's that like though, adapting to that where like realistically, this is not a drill yeah you're running to a bomb shelter like what what is what is that like at trying to adapt or wrap your head around that well i'll tell you it was actually kind of funny because that's how i met my neighbors <laughs> because i had just moved i'd moved into this new building and uh and this was in like i think july of 2014 and uh we we didn't ha okay so we had like a storage we had storage units in the basement which which doubled as like bunkers and um we couldn't find a key to ours. So we had to ask the people next, like, Hey, can we use your shelter? We're all headed down there at the same time. They're like, yeah, come on in. So uh, I got a chance to meet like half the neighbors in the building. 
Um, it, it is definitely strange. Uh, I don't know how, how best to describe it because at the time when it, at the few times that it happened, um, it was mostly just like, you have to react. Like, you know what you're supposed to do. It's like you, you race down to the bomb shelter and, uh, and you, you just kind of wait it out. Um, and there were times when buildings would get hit. It typically wasn't in Jerusalem. It was, um, maybe more like in the, in the center area, like, uh, I don't, Tel Aviv, I don't know if Tel Aviv ever, Tel Aviv may have gotten hit, but I remember having seen a building that got hit with a rocket in like Rishon Lezion, and it was kind of like just totaled. Um, and this was a num- this was actually before I'd even moved there. So add that to my street cred. Like I knew what I was getting into, even with yeah, like. Yeah, I mean that, that that's a very real fear, and again, that the news certainly um, pushes that. But but just making that switch to being like even knowing that this is the, this is what you do when this happens. Yeah, actually being in the you know, in, in the bunker for the first time wondering, is the building going to be standing when you get out of the bunker? Like I would be shitting myself. I think Uh, (laughs) in my head, I'm picturing like, you know, like, um, you know, a tornado movie where I'm like fucking just, I just ran into the farm bunker and I'm watching the barn doors fucking rattle against the chains. Right. Like I would almost be imagining something like that. Well, you know, the, uh, there was one, one thing that I think, uh, kind of allayed the fears a little bit was uh, the fact that Israel developed uh, a missile defense system called Iron Dome. And so it's extremely expensive to use evidently, but but it works pretty well. What it does is that when there's an incoming uh, missile, they they have, I don't know exactly how it works, but in essence, whatever the, what the system does is it like detects it and then it can track its trajectory and then calculate where it's going to land before it lands. So they'll, if they see like, okay, it's going to land, you know, uh, in the sea or it's going to land in an open area that's not, you know, where there are no people, then they don't shoot it out of the sky. Uh, but if it looks like it's going to land, uh, you know, like in a populated area, they'll, they'll shoot it out. But it's like $50,000, I think, every time they use it. So uh, it's, it's not cheap. And I, and and it's not a hundred percent effective. It's quite close, but there are a few instances where, again, it's like Iron Dome missed one that was coming in and uh, ended up, you know, destroying like a building or destroying, you know, houses and stuff like that. I remember one friend of mine was telling me that he was on the beach once in Tel Aviv and there were kids out in the sea. Uh, these Israeli kids were out in the sea, like, you know, with their, their tubes or their, you know, whatever the flotation devices were. And because the the Iron Dome system detected that it was going to land in the sea, it, it didn't shoot the missile out of the sky. And this thing landed feet from them and exploded under the water and like terrified them. Oh, but uh, it didn't it didn't wreck them. It didn't wreck them, no. But Ooh. I mean but it landed I mean he said it, it had to have been maybe six feet from them where it landed wow. and like blew up. So you can imagine, and seeing this from the shoreline must have been scary, but like to have been that close and to know that you there was no you couldn't run. There's nothing. Yeah, there's no. There's no paddling away. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Iron uh, Dome's a great fucking name if you're gonna have like a a country defense system. Iron yeah. Dome. That's so GI Joe. That yeah. Sounds more Cobra the enemy, but you know what I mean. Right. But yeah, because it got the word iron in it, you know. But so uh, now that now that you're back, um, what, what what has anything that you've obviously other than just personal growth uh, of your time there. Is there anything that you learn there that you've been directly applying um, in, now that you're back? Is, is there something that you really missed now that you're back that you're like, oh, shit, this has been happening? 
Um, yeah. Where this is really exciting now. What's going on there? Yeah, you know, I'm, I've kind of, uh, so I, I came back in November of 2017 and uh, at the behest of a friend of mine, Pat Flynn. And um, I, on the one hand, it was nice to like, like have not to be like super stressed every day. And I'm not trying to say that, you know, Israel's super stressful, but even Israelis will tell you it's tough to live there because there's just, you know, and it's not necessarily the, uh, the stuff that you would see in the media, but it's like, you know, things are expensive and people don't necessarily make very much money. Like cost of living is, is pretty high. I would say, and in many places, it, it would probably be pretty similar to like living in New York. Oh, wow. Um, like Tel Aviv, I think, is the ninth most expensive city in the world to live in, just as an example. Wow. Um, very, very expensive. Um, but anyway, it, it was nice to kind of like decompress. But uh, one thing, the biggest thing that I took with me is, um, you know, Dan John has said that the, when it comes to training, the ends inform the middle. So like the stuff that you can do with Grandma Betty and the stuff that you can do with like the athlete who's going into the NFL, like knowing both of those ends and being, and being good at them is going to make you like really, really good at training people in the middle. And I never really got the, the chance to train any athletes. It wasn't really something I was all that interested in to begin with, but, but I trained a lot of people who had, I, like I was literally the only other choice they had. It was like, you know, go back to PT or, or, you know, see a chiropractor every month or something like that because something else went wrong again and just continue to fall apart or work with me and, and, you know, help them to uh, basically just teach them how to move, but also teach it, teach them how to put it into a day-to-day, um, into a day-to-day routine. And one of the things that I never really encountered when I was teaching while living in Omaha was uh, people who just really didn't know what it meant to be fit, like ever. Like I, most of the people that I trained in, in Omaha were like, you know, they, they had done other things before. They were reasonably fit enough where I could give them a kettlebell and I could teach them how to do a swing and I could teach them these other movements. And like, you know, it wasn't going to, they weren't at, like at any risk of, of getting hurt because even if they weren't in super great shape, they were in good enough shape where they were, uh, like they could withstand it. But the people that, that I had to train, like they, like their very vision of themselves was not somebody who, uh, uh, was not that of somebody who was fit. So the idea of like, uh, and it was kind of like an emotional experience for them to train. It's like they have to get psyched up. They have to do something that just to, to them feels very unnatural. It feels, it feels very unlike them. So I learned a lot um, of, I would say, like in the trenches kind of psychology in helping people to do things like, uh, like just do some sort of movement daily. And I would tell them like, you know, we're going we're gonna to have a, just a daily movement commitment and it's just five minutes. I said, you can do more if you want. But once five minutes hits, you have no obligation to do anything further. You can do, you could just lay on the ground and breathe. You could do some crawling. You could go for a walk. You could really do anything. Like I'm going to leave it up to you, but just five minutes is all you owe me. And then you're going to, you're going to send me a text message uh, or you're going to, uh, you're going to send it either to our group or text message group or uh, just to me as an individual. And it worked like crazy. I mean, that's the most effective program I ever gave anybody because it started off for example with people like oh yeah I got in my five minutes I did this and then oh today I did 10 minutes and then within like a couple weeks I did this with a women's group I started it with a women's group in particular and then a few weeks they were all doing like 10-15 minutes like daily and periodically they would fall back to five minutes and I was like hey that's cool because remember you only have to do five minutes so if you can do more that's good but if not 
you know, there's no worries. You didn't, you didn't owe me 10 or 15 minutes. So they felt, they didn't feel bad about doing the five minutes or not, or doing less because like it, it took the mental pressure off of them so that they were doing something that was just so achievable that the emotional component of like, I can't see myself doing this. I can't see this being a part of my day. This isn't who I am. I don't know how to do this. Um, was taken out of the picture. And I, I mean, I even last year, I had a lady that I had trained uh, for some time, texted me out of nowhere. And she said, I just want to let you know, I've been uh, keeping up with the, the movements that you taught us. And uh, like ever since you left and I've lost 20 pounds. That's and, awesome. Yeah. And you know, it wasn't some crazy diet. It definitely wasn't hit. Right. Um, it, and she didn't, you know, she didn't go on to some like uh, anything crazy. It was just like being very consistent doing some of these basic movements and uh, you know, I, I couldn't have been happier. That's awesome. Consistency is such an important thing. And I, I think it's finally coming around. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I feel like that's sort of like the constant battle of the need for consistency and how people are sold variety, you know, yeah. like the, it's, it's such a weird marketing thing where uh, I, you got to, we're going to do a different workout every day. Um, Cause you gotta, you know, you gotta keep mixing it up. You, you got to confuse the shit out of your muscles. Yeah, you know, confuse everything. But then on the other end, it's like we actually have to consistently work to get good at stuff and, and keep coming back for sessions. So, like, how gnarly different does that have to be every day if I'm just trying to get good and, and knowing that the, the brain doesn't program movements in, in random order that way. It needs repetition Yeah. to, to, to sort of program what we're doing. Exactly. Um, yeah, man, that's cool. I'm stoked when I when I when I heard you were over with Pat. I've never met Pat, but he's clearly seems like a very smart guy, successful dude. Uh, seems like a perfect fit from the from the little bit of exposure I have from him. But he's somebody that I'd like to meet one day. I haven't met him. You uh, like him? Yeah, I'd have to make I'll have to make a trip out there because I remember Exton was always uh, in Dragon Gym because the first RKC that I went through and the first RKC I assisted were not far from there. They were in the Downington um, PA. No kidding. Yeah. That's super close by. Yeah, man, that big sports complex. I forget the name of it, but that's where oh. uh, they used to host the RKCs, the quote-unquote Philly RKCs. Interesting. Okay, that's very interesting. Uh, you... like all, all the groups love to claim, like, Philly, and yeah, it's never Philly. It's like Downington, King of Prussia. Boston's, like, rarely ever actually Boston. It's, like, somewhere, like, an hour out of Boston. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's <laughs> like uh, – I remember there was somebody was – I think it was Seth was telling me this joke about uh, – uh, people love saying they're from Chicago. Be like, where are you from? Chicago? Like, oh, what part? Uh, just right outside Chicago. Like, how far outside <laughs> Chicago? Milwaukee. You know? Yes. That's, that's it. And, and Downingtown is is probably close to an hour away from Philly for the listeners who are who are tuning in. So it's yeah. it's not like a twenty minute you know jaunt. It's it's pretty far. I'm trying to remember who it was. I think it was an instructor, but they were saying how like it was like an hour cab ride. So it was like a hundred dollar cab ride oh my God. to go from, uh, I don't know if it was the airport or the train to get to the, to the place. Uh, it would have been airport for sure because uh, the train, there is a train that goes to Downingham. So, um, but if, uh, but it's probably not, it wouldn't be close enough. Well, at any rate, yeah, it would have to have been from the airport, but, but that is really funny. I, I had no idea that they held them, uh, they held them out there. Yeah. And, and, you know, I've, do you know, do you know the place I'm thinking of? I'm talking about like the, I think the, I do. And I actually, I think it's, it might be in, is it, I think it might be more in Thorndale or, or like just on the edge of Downingtown. I'm not a hundred percent sure. I remember it being listed as Downington, but I remember we got, you know, this was back in the days of punishments and uh, yeah. 
having a suitcase carry a kettlebell that you're, you know, 24K around like a, man. Like a fool. It re- realistically could have been like a hundred square foot, hundred thousand square foot space. Like it was uh, yeah. massive. It had like two hockey rinks. We were doing in the basketball court area. It was huge. And it's one of those things, you know, we, we talk about the olden days of hard style kettlebell certification. <laughs> and I remember testing my get up on pavement. <laughs> Oh, yeah, they gave zero fucks about your comfort back then. I remember going through mine, and yeah, it was the first day, anyway, we had to carry our our kettlebell, even to the bathroom. Yeah, until lunch, we had to to carry our kettlebell with us through lunch. Yeah. And then we were able to sort of, like, put it away. Yeah, no, that was, yeah, those were the days. I, uh, when did you get certified? Uh, September 2010, so. Okay, so you were just one month before me. I was October 2010. Where, 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 Where was yours? Did you do St. Paul? No, mine was in um, uh, Florida, is in Orlando. Oh, all right. Um, yeah, September in Downington. And then I assisted literally like, I guess the second year anniversary of that one. Like I, I assisted for the first time in RKC, like around September in 2012. Oh, wow. And uh, the rest, as they say, uh, is history. Because I'd already been doing a lot of assisting work at, at five points at that point on uh, uh-huh. you know, the HKCs and whatnot uh let's talk about os real quick yes we must because you mentioned it and i think uh you know the interesting thing with kettlebell land and culture and again this isn't any specific grant i'm going to throw in hard style as, as an entirety is especially in like probably those like first five years it was uh i'd say it was a bit culty and i'd also say there was like we were so impressed with ourselves in terms of how awesome kettlebells were that we were almost like belittling other methods and yeah. I think, you know, it was like, uh, it, it's, it's, it's interesting to me how when that initial spike of kettlebell, by initial, I mean, like the first, say, one to eight years, like prior to us, yeah, like the pioneering phase of the RKC. Um, and I'm saying RKC folks, not to not mention Strong first. This is just, this was there first and that became it. We had, we're, we're friends, we're talking. I just I don't want people sure. to be like, oh, yeah. I want the, yeah just, if, you're, if you're upset, just do a set of angry push-ups, all right? Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> yeah, oh. just, uh, just putting it into context. Um, yeah. And I know for myself, like I stopped, I stopped barbell lifting for probably two years. And until I started really diving into uh, – you know, some Marty Gallagher stuff, that Purposeful Primitive book that uh, Dragon Door had put out. And then one of the cool things I thought when Strong first split off was they had the barbell cert. And it, it was interesting in that point that it felt like everyone sort of needed permission to pursue something else. Yeah. And you weren't in that category because long before there was an SFB bodyweight cert, long before there was a, a PCC, you were very down into bodyweight training and calisthenics and convict conditioning. Um, and then suddenly powerlifting became very popular because it kind of got like the Pavel nod, like, yes, this is legit stuff to do as well. And now I feel like OS has finally hit that mark where like everyone's starting to realize like, oh, look, we can actually make people really strong without any sort of uh, approval or dogma. Yeah. That, like this is valid. It's just like literally I feel like and clearly OS grew because initially because a lot of people knew Jeff and a lot of people knew Tim, again, from the kettlebell world. But just the, what I love about it is how you can break away from the dogma and just really see how simple it can be to help somebody. So like when you were mentioning the habits earlier that you had people do their five minute movement breaks, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I just love that we're getting to the point where we're past these hard rules or needing people's blessings 
um, yeah. of which courses and which certs to take. Um, but that we're also finding out that like on one end, if you want to follow a really deep scientific rabbit hole, you can do that. But at the other end of it, if you just want to have people roll around on the floor with a little bit of purpose and fun, you can also get amazing benefits. And I don't know if you could actually say that one's going to have like the high profile scientific super exacting method. It's going to deliver any sort of a better result than just you and I trying to have somebody segmental roll on the floor without the minutia. Um, yeah. What originally drew you to OS um, and, and then how has that really developed your training style or your programming style? Well, what originally drew me to OS, this was actually even before OS. I remember on the, the, uh, the old Dragon Door instructor forums, um, Jeff Newport posted something um, about this book called Becoming Bulletproof. And he said it was really great. I remember looking at the cover and I was like, that looks interesting. Uh, if Jeff says it's good, it's probably good. And it was like, I think $7 and 77 cents, uh, I think is what, uh, what Tim priced it at. And I read it and I was like, you know what? Everything in here makes so much sense. It's like really simple. Um, I was like really jazzed about it, but there, there wasn't a whole lot, uh, in terms, I, at this point I was very used to like, Here's a program, do this. They did have something in there like for, uh, for barbells, like Mike McNiff, uh, the co-author, included some stuff about like barbell training. Yeah. Um, and so, and that was pretty, I was like, okay, this I can, I can understand a little more. This, is, this makes sense. But what Tim wrote, I thought was like really pretty ingenious. I was like, um, you know, that, like, that, that all just makes so much sense in terms of like how the body's supposed to move, how it's supposed to feel. And I, I couldn't quite put my finger on exactly why, but I was like, I was pretty sold on it. And I remember trying some of the stuff myself. I remember having some like sucker punching some students with it and being like, we're going to try crawling today. <laughs> and, um, you know, and then uh, I remember reaching out to Tim once to ask him a question and he answered very quickly and he was very, um, he was very uh, gracious with his time. Um, and, uh, and so we would, we would be, uh, we were in contact periodically now and again. And, uh, and then they announced that they were going to be doing a Becoming Bulletproof. He and Jeff were going to be doing a Becoming Bulletproof workshop. In, I think it was in Virginia at the time. And, um, and I really wanted to go. And I remember I was telling my parents. And this was, I think, um, maybe October, uh, September or October maybe of 2012. And I was telling them, I was like, I'm really thinking about going, this, going to this because I've got the book and it's really good. And my dad, who's like ever the realist, was like, you know, you got to save up to go to Israel. You can't be spending your money on all these workshops. And I was like, yeah, I guess that's a good point. And I didn't go. And I was like, so bummed. And I was like, I should have just gone. And then, then the announcer was going to be one in Chicago in 2000, in November of that year. And I was like, amazing. And then the, the weekend before I went to, uh, to a, a different workshop, uh, actually Black Hawk Down, Corey and I both went, uh, it was Primal Move and uh, really enjoyed it a lot. Um, and uh, so then the next weekend, I was going to go back to Chicago uh, to save money. I bought a, a Megabus ticket for like, like, I think it was 95 bucks round trip or something like that. For a total of 20 hours on the bus over the weekend, it was, uh, it was, it was worth it. But it was like 10 hours from Omaha to there. Um, and then I stayed with, remember Laura McNally? Yeah. yeah. I haven't seen Laura in a while. Neither have I. I um, she's not on Facebook all that much, and unfortunately, being that the, that's like the only book people read, um, it's actually it's not so easy to, to stay in touch with people. So, but it, but at any rate, I stayed at her place, went to this workshop. It was like 
mind blown. Like I loved Primal Move, but I, there was something about um, becoming bulletproof, which would later become original strength, that uh, it was so clear, it was so simple, it was so easy to see what worked or what didn't because you just tested everything. Yeah, it was nothing was meant to be algorithmic. Nothing was meant to be like very uh, like super highly ordered or complex. And I was like hooked. And my, my original impetus for doing it was I was like, you know, I, the, my first uh, contact with somebody that I couldn't train with kettlebells and I realized that I couldn't was with my mom. So I was like, I want to help her in some way. There's got to be something that she can do. And at this point, I only really knew kettlebell and bodyweight training. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I wasn't going to try to have her doing one-arm push-ups because that would have been absurd. Um, but she would have been a badass when she got them. She would have. Absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, uh, but I also, I, I don't want my mom to chump me in anything. So it's like, I had to kind of, <laughs> I had to hold that back. Mom's got more followers on her yeah, fitness exactly. website than, would, than I do. Yeah. That would have made, uh, family get togethers a lot more irritating, but, um, <laughs> but at any rate, so I decided, uh, I, okay, I have to teach her some of this stuff and, and it has been phenomenal. Like it's been very helpful for her. Um, and, uh, and so I was, I was in, I was like, I remember talking to Tim and Jeff afterward and I was, I was saying like, you know, I was telling them that I wanted to, I wanted to bring them out to Israel to do a workshop and I just didn't have the means to do it because I like, other than Ronan and Benny at the time, I didn't know anybody else in the fitness yeah. industry out there. I just didn't have the connections. Um, and, and the other thing too, is that it's like, I don't think, I think now it may be more likely to catch on because I, I introduced the idea to um a lot of my friends and colleagues out there and they really liked it but but it's it would just take some time but at any rate um that was really it it was that uh, i early on in 20 i remember in 2011 i bought the book i printed it out even uh in fact i think i still have that that original printout I, that might be worth something probably at least nine bucks by now but uh, <laughs> uh but i i was really hooked when i saw how how well i mean i already moved pretty well to begin with but i i could even notice like a difference in in the way that I moved when I would do these resets. And, um, and, it, and it turned out that that was, you know, people, a lot of people are going to tell you, you know, uh, from their own experience or what they think, don't do this, don't do that because, you know, X, Y, Z. And, uh, you know, like in the case of my dad, he was looking out for me because he thought yeah, he's going to just, you know, blow all the money that he saved, you know, to support himself while he gets on his feet by going to all these workshops. Yeah. But if I hadn't gone to that workshop, it wouldn't have led to uh, me, you know, writing guest articles for Original Strength, uh, which, you know, I, I didn't realize it at the time, but was demonstrating to Tim and Jeff that I understood the system and I, I really got it. And, uh, and then they invited me. Uh, I was the only international person that they invited to the, uh, the Original Strength, uh, the, the first crop of instructors. The, the specialist meeting. In 24, yeah, exactly. Uh, so so that, that sort of, we have a very similar path to this. So I, I, I started with Primal Move too, right? So I took Primal Move, um, one of the, I think it might've been like the second or third one they had. It's the first one in New York, it was at Five Points Academy and, and I really dug it. And I think it's almost unfortunate that the split happened right as that launched too. I think it yeah. took some of the sales out of it because suddenly it was like, Peter uh, Lakatosh was in this weird position of like, well, now I'm a strong first guy, but my system's tied to Dragon Door. Yeah. And uh, I really enjoyed it. And I think I had a similar thing to you where I was using the PFE as a warm up, which is like, you know, the, the their sort of warm up slash assessment, but I wasn't assessing. I mean, I was, but I wasn't like officially assessing. 
Yeah. And I was using elements of the crawling games and the movements and, and gamifying things. But I knew that there was a level of practice needed to really master the entire system that for me personally, I just wasn't interested in. Yeah. There was like a level of higher end calisthenics, um, slightly yoga-esque stuff that I just wasn't really interested in pursuing. And a level of complexity that just in terms of carryover with people, I was a little bit like, well, that actually takes a little bit more time on form to dictate. And it's fine to have things to dictate form. Kettlebells, you need to be pretty meticulous on. DVRT you need to be pretty meticulous on. But if you're being very, spending a lot of time coaching people up on, say, a swing or a getup, I need to have other things that aren't that complicated. Yeah. Uh, a, for time, my time management, but also for their nervous system so that they can comprehend it. And then, you know, I was starting to phase out a little bit uh, primal move, which is now called ground force method was very tied into FMS. And as I was going through this, I was starting to uh, use FMS less. I'm so grateful for the language. I still use elements of it, but I also stopped using my verbiage of like correctives. Um, yeah. How I worded things. Cause I, I, I think that's actually very powerful how you word things. And when I got the book Bullet, uh, Becoming Bulletproof. And I think it was actually you and Rick Garcia were the first two that I knew had gone to the workshop and were two strong cats that I had seen making big leaps in their strength mm -hmm. um, and, 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 and mobility and grace overall, I guess. Grace is probably the better word for it. Just, just really hauling and moving well. Uh, I think you two were the two standouts aside from just watching Tim, who I hadn't met yet. And then I started reaching out to Jeff about bringing him to New York to Five Points Academy to do Becoming Bulletproof. And then it was in that trying to make that happen that Becoming Bulletproof became original strength. And then I ended up at the second strong first cert assisting. This was in Boston, AKA not Boston, as we've already discussed. It was right, in yeah. Boston. But that's when I met Tim. And I'd actually like tweaked my hamstring during a snatch test slightly. And I was trying to do some resetty stuff. And Tim came over and like gave me some really specific targeting things in my eyes. And I was like, wow, that feels better. Anyway, they already had a bunch of people trying to do Becoming Bulletproof workshops. We finally book in a date for New York. Uh, you know, we're selling some tickets for it. And then all of a sudden, I start getting emails from like, or mess, Facebook messages from like you, um, the Rosslers, Rick Garcia. Uh, suddenly, everyone's starting to come. And I'm like, wow, everyone's coming to this thing. And that's when it was the specialist thing. And that's when I was asked that, you know, invited to be a part of the specialist team as well, um, where that became like basically the initial assistant team, which then grew into a lot of uh, the first instructors. Yeah. And that course, like if you think, if you look at the, what I'm very proud of that course was not only from who's become an OS instructor from it or, or in leadership roles there, but if you just look at the level of attendees there, there's probably like at least five strong first team leaders at that one, at least a yeah. um, couple of people from RKC leadership, people that would go on to PCC leadership. Like there's just from all around the East coast, basically like a bunch of hitters at that OS course. Like it was pretty amazing when you look at that group photo, it sort of was a who's who is who's coming up in the scene at that point. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. It was definitely like, this is the next generation feels weird because some of us are younger than others or older than <laughs> others. But like, it was really like, here's the next group that's going to be coming up in the leadership roles.
Yeah. Um, and, and again, for me, it's just like you said, it's like the, the simplicity and, and being able to apply it without having like, yes, you should understand it. Yes, you should try it yourself. But it's not like a high end move where, you know, I think this might work for somebody. I'm going to try it versus like, I don't really know how to do this thing. It's going to hurt them. Does yeah. that make sense? A hundred percent. And I love that idea. When someone comes to a pressing reset certification now, they can just see something and like, I think I understand what this does. And I think it's going to be good for Susie. And they can just go and try it for Susie without wondering if like, do I really know how to do a getup? Yeah. You know, it's just like, let's just try this bird dog or this dead bug and see how this goes. And I love that stuff. I'm a huge fan of that. I, and I think, you know, it's funny too, because I keep getting reminded of this again and again. Like, you know, I'm somebody who like, like I like to look at like the nuances and like make sure you do this and that. The nice thing with OS is that the nuances help, but they're not like so essential. Like with a getup, you know, for example, it's like you miss one step and uh, it's like you're not going anywhere else. Like, you, you know, you just, everything has to be done in, in a certain, in a certain way. Yeah. Um, I had a, I did a video, a Facebook live video that with uh, Pat was recording it. And one of my colleagues, Alyssa, uh, we were going through some, pointers to, on how to improve your, your military press and so I started with you know like here's the first troubleshooting thing you know she gave some pointers and then I was like here's some troubleshooting things to look at here are some uh, self-limiting uh, movements that you could try like you know like a tall kneeling press half kneeling whatever and then just at the end I was like um, you know another thing that you should really consider doing would be like rocking because for a lot of people that's going to help to make sure that all your muscles in your shoulder girdle are working and, uh, and I wanted to go into more detail and I was like, I'll just leave it at that. But somebody commented like that rocking is amazing. I'm going to do that before every press now. And I was yeah. like, you know, just from watching the video, it's like, it's not to say that you, you don't need like a pressing reset certification. I think it's extremely important if you want to really understand, um, not just how to do the movements, but how they fit into whatever it is that you're trying to do and how to, uh, whether it's you know, something athletic or whether it's in a weight room or just, you know, for general fitness. But, uh, but even something is just as simple as that, like giving a few pointers on how to rock, nothing special, hands and knees, just very standard rocking. And uh, it made a tremendous impact on this gal's press. And, yeah, uh, and it, it just get reminded of that over and over again. And I think it's great to be able to go to this. I think it's really important to go to the certification and I don't want this to be a sales ad for it. Um, but here we go. Cause we both teach, but I know for me, it was one of those that reading the book and then doing it in person, it, it was a completely different experience. Like yeah. actually sitting there and testing your baseline and trying the progressions, regressions in, in, in the order they have set up. And then, you know, basically having the freedom, like this is probably the only time you're going to sequence them this specific way. Cause you're going to find what works for the person. Uh, I, I just go into the course was really eye opening, And I, it, even with the structure of the course, when you and I went through, it was like a day and a half thing. And mm -hmm. I love that it's a one day. Um, yeah. I feel like there was a little bit of filler. We got a little bit of lost in it. It was awesome. But I just love how like focused and potent it is right now. And, uh, and having gone, Alex and I, we were roomies at OS Pro, which is sort of like, uh, for lack of a better phrase, the level two of OS. Uh, goes more into the science behind it. Seeing how that has developed over the years has been awesome. Like, I think that was my fourth, fourth one in six years. Oh, wow. And just seeing how it's grown time and time again and modified and sharpened. It's awesome. Uh, man, I'm going to have, we've actually been talking for almost an hour and a half and I want to keep talking, but I'm going to have to walk the dog. Uh, some folks, if you hear some weird whining, 
throughout this episode. It was me, but now it'll be the dog. <laughs> it was the dog in the background, Ramona. Um, let's have a part two at some point in the near future. How's that sound? Let's do it. Uh, I love you, man. And I, I, I'm really, I'm sorry to have to cut this one. It, it's not short, but it feels like I'm cutting it short. Um, leave it, feels like, it doesn't feel like an hour and a half has passed. I know. It's pretty lovely. And I'm really grateful that we had a time to like hang out. Um, folks, like I said, like we, Alex and I, um, I guess we knew each other about a year before you, or two, two years before you moved. Yeah. You slept over a couple times. I ran into you on the street with Hemingway once randomly as I was First on my time. way to another session. And then we finally got to hang out at OS Pro. So uh, Alex is one of the good dudes um, uh, that I'm like, I'm always excited when good things are happening to good people. And I'm glad you're back in the States. No offense, Israel. I'm glad. <laughs> Uh, where can people find you and find out about you on the socials and whatnot? Well, you know, I, um, I'm starting to kind of get back into social media thing. Um, but I, I, at present, it's still a little bit sporadic. But what, uh, probably the easiest way, if you want to be in regular contact with me, uh, I have an email list. Um, I like to call it my future Pulitzer Prize worthy email list. I don't know if it's ever actually going to win a Pulitzer, but um, I'll send, uh, Steve, I'll send you the, the link to it. I've, um, but that's where I give out all my best information. It's where I'm by far the most consistent. Awesome. Um, and I'll put that up on the uh, show notes. Yeah, perfect, perfect. Uh, but that's, that's definitely the easiest way. Um, and from there, it'll be very easy to find me on all the social media stuff. If I try to explain like how to spell my name, you just, you know, I, I've got a funny spelling of a, of a name. So send me, your, send me your email address with those links. I'll just put them up on the show notes, folks. So you can find it, find it out. Alex does write. Um, I think a lot of people, I mentioned this earlier, a lot of people put out stuff to put out stuff. And I think Alex actually puts out um, above average quality stuff. And, and, and I think that's rare. So you should track that down, folks. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Not dissing the industry, but let's face it. Everyone's feeling the pressure to put stuff out. Um, it's not all necessary. So, yeah. uh, dude, thank you for having uh, the, taking the time to coming on the show. The guest tells the listeners to die mighty. Can you tell the listeners to die mighty? Folks, I command you, die mighty. <laughs> hey, man, thank you so much for coming on. And we'll get you on shortly after. Like, let's make a part two happen sooner than later. I can't wait. Let's do it. The Coach Fury Podcast is created, owned, and produced by Steve Coach Fury Holliner for Fury Industries, LLC. Music provided by The FTW. Visit the FTW.nyc for band, tour, music, and merch info. Artwork created by Glenn Gurrieta. Visit glenngurrieta.com. That's G-L-E-N-N-U-R-I-E-T-A. Or follow him on Instagram at glenngurrieta. Voiceover by Laura Palmer.